Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Let's read Romans 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me pray. Lord, we, we need you to help us this morning as we get into your word. We need you to turn the lights on so we see your word clearly, so we love it and rejoice in it and repent before it, so we understand who you are, Lord, so we love who you are, so we are changed by who you are, Lord, so that we understand the hope that we have, the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us, Lord, so that we'd understand that. We'd look forward in hope to that, but Lord, that we would know that there are indeed sufferings of this present time. They don't mean that you've turned from extending favor to us, that you've rejected us, that you've thrown us back into the state of orphans, Lord, but that you, um, they mean just the opposite, that as we groan inwardly, knowing because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, that it should be better than this, that we are those who have hope that the glory is coming, that the cross precedes the crown, Lord, that we would look forward to that day when death has no more victory has no more sting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start off talking to the believers. If you're an unbeliever in the room, I want you to hear what I have to say because um, it, it can apply to you. But I want to ask this question or this set of questions I'm about to ask in the context of speaking directly to those of you who are believers. And here's what they are. Do you believers ever struggle with wondering why you're suffering? That happened to you? Do you ever wonder if God has abandoned you? Has God abandoned me? Or, or is he angry with me? Do you ever um, see your suffering and eternal, the internal groaning that you're suffering from and wishing things were different than they are and, and see that as proof that God has turned on you? That happened to you? You see, we have this idea floating around in Christianity that um, when I'm happy, when things are going well, when I am blessed, when I feel close to God, then I can know I'm his. Then I know I'm saved, and then I know his favor's on me. However, when I'm suffering, when I'm feeling distant, when things are going poorly, and I'm not happy inside, but I'm groaning inwardly, just wanting God to take me home, knowing this life is not what I ultimately want, then I must be unsaved. I must no longer be his. His favor must not be with me anymore. I must not have enough faith to please him. And let me be perfectly clear. 
This gospel that I've just talked about is a gospel of works, which bases God's favor toward us on some false standard of trumped-up joy and faith that is always approved with blessing. This is a gospel that bases my salvation on my performance. It is a messianic complex that we all suffer from. We're so in love with our own conception of our ability to please God that we make ourselves into functional saviors, don't we? And if I can't do everything just right, if I can't meet whatever performance standard that I've set up in my head, then I become anxious and depressed or I become apathetic. I may even be driven to despair and commit suicide, which is at the end the ultimate act of self-love and self-worship. What does Jesus say about our attempts to be God for ourselves? What does he say about them? What does he say about our attempts to save ourselves. You know, when the apostles were tempted to worry, in Matthew 6, one of the things he taught was what? That don't worry. You cannot add a single hour to your life by worrying. In other words, what is he saying to them? What do you think you're God? If you worry about it enough, you'll suddenly get more time and everything will change. You can't, you're not God. You can't save yourself. Just seek his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Stop trying to provide for yourself. God will. Some of you say, see, see, look, well, look now. Now that you've said that, Pastor, I suffer from what you're talking about. And that's yet more proof, more proof that you've just shown me that I can't possibly be acceptable to myself or others or to God. I must not even believe or trust God if I feel this way. I want you to listen very carefully. The greatest prayer of faith, the greatest prayer of faith is not, Lord, I am always rejoicing in all the glorious living I'm experiencing. And even when suffering comes my way, I don't ever groan in the midst of it or have to fight to believe because I'm more than a conqueror and I've reached a point when I'm so captured by God's glory that I no longer weep or suffer pain, or become distressed or depressed. Why? Because my faith is so strong that I choose not to believe in the pain and suffering all around me. That's not the prayer of someone who lives in this age of suffering, is it? This is the prayer of some charlatan preacher who, whether he knows it or not, is lying through all his pearly white teeth and who cannot cash the checks, no matter how many books he sells, that he's writing to you of the promise that everything will be good for you if you just believe. Can anyone challenge the notion that Jesus was severely depressed? Anyone? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating blood. You know what that? He had the capillaries in his skin literally bursting because of the wrath of God that he was about to suffer. And yet he prayed a prayer that I think is the pinnacle of faith. Pinnacle of faith. He says this, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Your suffering and your groaning in the midst of suffering is not proof, is not proof that you aren't saved. Your suffering and your groaning in the midst of suffering is proof that you belong to Jesus. You hear that? It's proof that you belong to him. It's proof that you belong to the one who shows us, 
who has shown us that the cross comes before the crown. It's proof that you hope it won't always be this way, isn't it? That you know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Why? Because you have the first fruits of the Spirit. You have tasted a bit of the glory to come that God has guaranteed. God poured out His Spirit on Pentecost. That feast, Pentecost, is the feast of the first fruits. Why? Because when you give the first fruits of the harvest, then that's proof the rest of the harvest is coming. And so God pours out his spirit on that day, giving the first fruits of the harvest, guaranteeing that that glory you now taste because of the spirit, you will taste in fullness one day. Because you have that hope, you suffer, you groan as those who are children of God, and you should not become discouraged because you are groaning in hope for coming glory. As long as your groaning is not groaning that is absent hope, that it will be answered, as it is with unbelievers. Their groaning leads to death, doesn't it? Not, it is not the groaning of labor that leads to new life, as it is the woman who's giving birth. It's the groaning that leads to death. But your groaning, if you're a believer, is a groaning that knows Jesus will not fail to keep his promise. It's not a groaning that knows you are faithful. It's a groaning that knows he is and that you're his, and that you're groaning in hope is proof that you are. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 21. He's talking about how the creation has been set, as, excuse me, as groaning itself has been. And look what it says in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. It's decaying, right? And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's not ours yet, but it will be. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We are patiently waiting and groaning for the glory that's to come. Because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. This text comes in a section of Romans. I don't want you to miss this. Comes in a section of Romans in which Paul is making a sustained argument from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 39. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 briefly. Listen to this argument he's making. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we've been justified, forgiven, declared righteous through the instrumentality of faith, we didn't do anything, we just received it. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? We have peace, we've been reconciled. He's no longer our enemy who's opposed to us. We now have peace with him. We have peace with God. And listen to what he says. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to him. And we rejoice in hope, what? Of the glory of God. Hear that? And he lays out, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because sufferings produce endurance. And endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, does it? what he goes on to say because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us God has shown us he loves us he's poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
He, he saved us through faith. He gave us peace with himself. He gave us access to himself. He gave us the hope, the guarantee of glory with himself. And even when we suffer, all that does is build more hope. And then he goes on and says, God loved you. Listen to the case he's making. He did all this. Why? Because he loved you. He loved you while you were still sinners. Verse 8. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us, didn't he? And then he goes on. He makes this incredible, incredible claim. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more, or much more, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, listen to this, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we have been saved, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you hear that? If we were his enemies and God killed his glorious, holy, eternal son, Jesus, for us, how much more, now that we're his friends, will he save us? If he would do that for us while we're his enemies, how much more will he save us while his friends? Obviously, much, much more. And then Paul goes on to say, you know, you were in Adam. You're now in Christ. You're united to Christ through faith. And grace not only abounds, grace superabounds. And when your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, God gave the law to increase our trespass. What does that mean? We saw the righteous standard of the law. We recognized we were sinners. And not only did we recognize we were sinners, we were actually incited to sin more. To increase the trespass. And it goes on and says this. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear the case he's making? You've been justified by faith. And if that's true, you have peace with God. You have access to his in the grace in which you stand. You have access to him. You have the certainty of glory. And even when you suffer, that builds hope. Why? Because God loves you. He loved you while as an enemy, while you're his enemy. He killed a son for you while you were his enemy. How much more now that you're his friends will he save you? Why? Because you are united to him through faith. You belong to Jesus. And so even when your sin abounds, grace abounds all that much more. Why? Because your sin can never eclipse the measure of the grace that was bought for you in the cross by Jesus Christ. Ever. Ever. And Paul says, then shall we sin so that grace may abound? He says, no way. Why? Because not only was the penalty for your sin paid, but the power for your sin was broken, chapter 6. So start living that way. And I know it's going to be a battle. I know it's going to be tough. I know you're going to want to you delight in the law and your inner man, but your outer man, you keep giving in to this sin. And you start crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 8, and he starts it this way. Verse 1, there is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Gone. None. Do you hear the case he's making? Chapter after chapter after chapter, verse after verse, you're his. There's no condemnation for you. You're his. You couldn't keep the law before. You couldn't possibly please him, but now you have the Spirit through faith in Christ. And now you can. And now you are putting to death the deeds of the body because you're spirit-led. 
You're children of God. You've been adopted as sons, and the Spirit is now in your heart crying out, Abba, Father. You know you're his children. He's testifying to your hearts that you are. And you know what? You're going to suffer with him, and you'll also be glorified with him. You're going to be a co-heir with him. You're going to inherit God. Hear that? And I know you suffer now, but just remember, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. You're a case Paul's bringing to them. And even while you're groaning, the creation's groaning, you're the first fruits of the Spirit telling you glory, something better is coming. And even while you're doing that, you don't know how to pray sometimes. And God's Spirit is groaning with you on your behalf, praying for you. And you should know that God is working all things together for the good of those who loved him, love him and are called according to his purpose. He will glorify you. So much so is that a guarantee. He can say that all those who were called were justified and all those who have been justified have been glorified. Past tense. It hasn't happened to you yet and yet it's guaranteed, such a guarantee, he can speak of it as if it has. For God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? Will not he who gave us his own son also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The son, Jesus, is at the right hand of the father, interceding on your behalf right now. Why? Telling the father, keep them. Keep them. Sanctify them. Don't lose a hold of them. Nothing, nothing, if this is true, can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not angels or demons, not height or depth, nothing in all creation, nothing and no one can separate you from the love of Christ that is in love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that case? He is making that from chapter five, verse one, all the way through chapter eight. And suffering is right smack in the middle of that. The reality is that your faith, your sincerity, your feeling good, the blessings you see around you are not the ground for your security. The ground for your security is Jesus. Your righteousness is not found in anything you do. It is found, your righteousness, at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. Do you feel the force of that argument? Four chapters he's making it. Do you feel it? You don't keep yourself in the faith. God keeps you in the faith. Yes, you're responsible to believe. But God has done this great work of faith in you, and he will finish what he has started. He doesn't send his adopted children back to the orphanage. Nothing can take them away from him. Nothing. The Spirit of God is praying for you when you don't know how to, and the Son of God is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Do you think the Father would neglect their prayers? But I think when we believers are suffering, we can be so quick to conclude so quick to conclude that God is not for us, that he's abandoned us, and that maybe it's due to my failure or lack of, you know, uh, or, or my sin or lack of sincere faith. But Paul is making it clear, God hasn't abandoned you. He's not punishing you because, his, you know, because somehow his favor is no longer on you. He's for you. He's been a for, for you since eternity past. He's for you because you're united to his son through faith. He can't ever be against his son. And if you're united to him through faith, he can't ever be against you. Yes, you are in a fallen creation. Yes, you are not yet glorified, but the glory is coming and the glory is magnificent. Paul's saying, 
Yes, you're in the age of suffering. Yes, you're in the age of the cross, but the age of glory, the resurrection is coming. We know this day is coming, don't we? And we groan in hope for it. But for now, death seems to be getting the victory, doesn't it? Seems to be, doesn't it? That's why we need to hear Paul say this. 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In that, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? One of the proofs of the fact that you know his glory is coming is that you are groaning inwardly because you can't wait for the glory to get here. Even the creation is groaning with you. Everything is frustrated for us because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. We groan because we know we have a greater glory coming, and this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You know, I want to I go a step further than Paul does here, because Paul is talking about believers who are groaning, and they're groaning, but they have a sense of hope in doing so. But what about unbelievers? And the whole creation groans. That's speaking primarily about the um, irrational creation, i.e. the idea of just the created order, not humans. That all groans because its purposes have been frustrated because the people who are supposed to have dominion over it are sinning. But you kind of groaned while you were an unbeliever too, huh? The difference between you're groaning as an unbeliever and you're groaning as a believer is you're groaning as an unbeliever led to death and not to life. It wasn't a groaning because you had the first fruits of the Spirit testifying to you that glory is yours in Christ. It was a groaning because you knew this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And it was a groaning that was intensified by your constant idolatry and focus on this, trying to make this thing, this world, what you think it should be. And it constantly being frustrated when everything you tried failed to accomplish what you hoped it would. Is that true? Why do even unbelievers seek glory and beauty and happiness in the world? Do you guys notice that they do? Why did you and I seek glory for ourselves and desire to behold beauty and to pursue some happiness greater than could satisfy us prior to believing? Why do we do that? We did so because we have eternity written on our hearts. We did so because we know God is. He's testified to us that he is. But we have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We are people made to behold glory. We are people made to have unspeakable eternal joy, to not only gaze on beauty, but to join in it. We chase after the beauty and glory of this world, and it never quite satisfies, does it? I wrote down some things I was thinking about the way we do this. We love, at least I do. If you don't, I'm sorry. You're not as nerdy as me. But we love good books, don't we? New books, to open them and smell them. You guys, you guys have this problem? It's like, oh. No, maybe not. Maybe new guns for you. I don't know, but you understand the point, right? You understand the point. To smell it and, and feel the fresh pages and see all that glorious print that as you look at it, it launches you into a story that transcends 
us and is glorious because it does. And we almost wish we could join it, but the story ends and we have to move on to another. It's glorious, but it never quite delivers what we hope. Do you guys ever have a feeling? We love beautiful music. Just to hear each note joined together with the next in a symphony of sound. And we are at once carried away into a concert of glory in which we wish we could dance on top of the notes. And yet it ends and we move on to the next song. We love the awesomeness and grandeur of the sunset, don't we? It's a feast for our eyes as we gaze at the sun setting across a calm blue ocean, isn't it? And we almost sit there longing to be set a sail across the sea into another world, don't we? As we see something that transcends us. And as the wind blows, we almost want it to blow into our souls. And yet it ends. And then we move on to another vista. Or we see a magnificent painting. And we are so enraptured by the scene and struck by the tranquility and the use of colors and the intricacy and the ability of the artist. And we almost, almost want to get caught up into the painting, don't we? But we can't, and so we move on. Or we witness an unforgettable moment. Does this guy's happened to you guys? An unforgettable moment of human achievement. I think of it with regard to sports primarily. We want to stand and cheer and dance around, don't we? Think of what happens at the end of a great football game when at the very end the winning touchdown is thrown and they catch it and how people just go crazy, don't they? And they're dancing around the players. That's what I love about college football because you can watch people literally worshiping something that transcends them and you see it. You guys have experienced, haven't you? Have you sat there at a great sports moment and it happens and you jump up and you say, yes, this is it right here. Here it is. They won. And you're excited and you're caught up. And what do you do for a brief moment? You forget about you, don't you? That's what happens in that book and that painting and that music and that sunset. You forget about you and you're focused on something that transcends you and you're caught up in it and you know it should be yours. And yet it isn't. It doesn't deliver. These things never really satisfy, do they? They never quite get it done because they're just small parables, small pictures of what is ours in God. God in his glory is what our hearts were made to long for. And he gives us these great pictures of it. When I walk into my children's room while they're sleeping and look at them sleeping there, and if I could just crawl inside of them almost, I would sounds sick, but you understand if you're a parent. You just want to get so close because you're caught up in something God has done that's glorious. And the problem is, is that my heart was meant to long for God, and those pictures were given to me so that I would see how glorious the giver of those gifts are. And the problem is, or is, and the problem is that when I look at the gifts, I begin to worship them instead of the giver of them. And they don't satisfy me. And this is what we did as unbelievers. These glorious pictures became idols that broke our hearts, didn't they? C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said it this way. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, our good images, our good images of what we really desire, 
But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. We don't only have a God-given sense within us, do we, that we should gaze upon glory and rejoice in it. Don't just think we should gaze upon it and rejoice in it. We actually have the sense that in some way we should participate in it, don't we? That in some way, glory should be ours. That we should be living in glory and that we should be glorified. And we try to seek that glory for ourselves as if we are the end, thinking that we should be the object of others' joy. This is what we know of as people seeking fame, right? Do they not? And approval and accolades, the desire to be well thought of. And when we see other people capture it, we almost want to hear bad things about them, don't we? Because we think that glory should be ours and not theirs. Why are they getting more? And they long after it. And when they capture it, they find it's empty. And we want accolades. We want approval. I, I read a, a, a story to my kids. I bought this book. I encourage you to buy it and read it to your children if they're small. Called Fool Moon Rising. Not full, F-U-L-L, but fool, F-O-O-L. Fool Moon Rising. And it's a book, a, a children's picture book, about a moon. Um, who, and it personifies, obviously, the moon. The moon doesn't really think and have ideas. You know, you understand that. When it personifies the moon, it becomes a character in the story. And he is a moon that is so caught up with himself. He, his eyes are always closed, incidentally. Through the whole story, his eyes are closed. And he's just, look how glorious I am. People land on me, Right? Look, look at the light I give to the night sky. Look at how glorious I am. And he, he goes bla- bragging to all the other planets and stars. Look at me. People gaze on me at night. They land on me. Look at how great I am. I am the greatest light there is, essentially, is his picture. And his eyes are closed the whole time. Until the point in the story when he comes around the earth and his eyes open and he sees the sun. And then he cringes with horror as he realizes that I don't even have my own light I'm giving off. I'm just reflecting the light of the sun. I'm not the source of any of this. He is. And the story makes the point, what do you have that hasn't been given to you by God? It's God's glory that you reflect. That's it. That you reflect. And the problem is your eyes are closed. And because they're closed to the truth, you miss where true glory is coming from. And how we can participate in it. Every time I see a boxer jump onto the ring and go like this and start doing this stuff. Or some guy run into an end zone and start pounding his chest and telling people, look at me. I see that moon in the sky just squinting going, look how great I am. And it's absurd. Because everything they have comes from God. Everything. But we run around with our eyes closed thinking that it's us. We pervert what should be true. We should participate in glory as those reflect the glory of God knowing that he is the one to whom it all points but instead we think we should be the center of it. We're created to be glorified as the children of God. We are. 
We've been in bondage to decay like creation. Paul says that the suffering in this present age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. Really, the, the idea there is unto us, in us. We not only see it, we participate in it. Suffering in this present age is not worthy. It has no weight in comparison to the glory that we will participate in, believers. None. But isn't it prideful to pursue that kind of glory? I mean, isn't that isn't the, the pursuit of the idea that we would be glorified? I mean, to be well thought of, that we would be well thought of, approved, pronounced to be good, isn't that prideful? I mean, it seems okay, right, to see how people want to gaze on glory, gaze on the glory of God, and somehow be able to rejoice in the glory of God, but isn't it not the height of arrogance to think that I should be glorified, that I should be well thought of and receive accolades with God, not because of good in me, I'm talking about believers here who understand, but because of the good in Jesus, that that is coming to me. We do receive the glory, listen, the glory of the children of God, Paul says. What what do children want from their parents? They want approval, don't they? They want pronouncements of their having done well. They want the joy of being rejoiced in, don't they? Don't you want to please God and have him say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that's yours. Don't you want to have that said to you? Don't you delight to hear that God says of his people, my delight is in you. Used to be forsaken, but no longer. Now you're my delight. C.S. Lewis goes on to describe this In the same book, The Way to Glory says this, apparently, what I had mistaken for humility, the idea that we should never seek that kind of glory in a sense, what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. Lewis isn't calling, C.S. Lewis is not calling for God to provide selfish desire for self-adoration. What he's saying is he recognizes that when we rejoice, when rejoicing in praise from God, we're rejoicing in God, not in ourselves. Hear that? Not in ourselves. If you're an unbeliever, some of you probably are. I, please know that your heart testifies to you again and again that there is something or someone greater than you. Please know it's true. You see the longing in your heart for someone transcendent or something transcendent, don't you? You see the longing in your heart for heavenly approval in the way that you seek it, how? From man and from um, others. And you envy those who've gained it, don't you? You see it in your depression and despair and your suffering. The very fact that you receive suffering as such is tacit acknowledgement that you know this is not the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? You have perverted God's design for you. You've suppressed the truth of God in your unrighteousness and godliness. You have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and you've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. You've exchanged the truth about God and sought accolades from the creation, from dumb idols, rather than worshiping the only true God who can give you what you 
forsook him to say, seek after. He's holy. You need to know this, unbelievers. God is holy. And your seeking after dumb idols offends him. And he is just and he will vindicate his holiness called wrath. And he is gracious and loving beyond comparison. And he has given his son to live perfectly where you failed to and to pay your penalty that is due to you on the cross and to rise from the dead so that you could have life, so that you would be guaranteed not only life now, but the hope of glory in the midst of this present age of suffering. Listen, he did that for everyone who would ever believe in the history of the world. If you would repent and flee to him in faith, let let me say this, you will. Hear this, if you're an unbeliever in here, if you repent and flee to Jesus in faith, you will continue to suffer. Your suffering may get worse, but you will not suffer as one without hope. You will suffer as one with hope. The glory is coming. This is the gospel, the good news we have to offer you. Sovereign grace, this is the good news we have to offer our neighbors and our families and our friends and our coworkers. That's the good news we rejoice in. I want to end with this last quotation from Lewis because I think it's so good. I want you to hear it. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift of many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets know all about. We do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with beauty, with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. This is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. Or not yet. At present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creature is in its lifeless obedience, that's the resurrection, then they will be put on, they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. We are summoned to pass in through nature, beyond her, into that splendor which she fitfully reflects. And in there, beyond nature, we shall eat of the tree of life. With Lewis and with Paul, I remind you, the cross comes before the crown. During this age, we will suffer. But it is not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us on the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the hope of glory that we have with you. 
We are thankful that you have made the picture so clear to us again and again in creation. Please forgive us for our, for our suppressing the truth of your gloriousness and unrighteousness and for seeking to worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen.